Good morning. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 this morning. So 1 through 11 of 1 Peter chapter 4. For this next uh, hour or so, we're going to be diving into the text of Scripture and then thinking about around our tables what it means to, for us as, as, as youth, as teenagers. And I'm really excited to talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we're, we're walking in the Spirit. We're living in the Spirit. We're filled by the Spirit. We're made alive by the Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit of God is super important in the life of the Christian, and often He is the... The, the, the person of the Trinity kind of in the background. But the Holy Spirit really is the third person of the Trinity. He really is equal in glory and power and essence with the Father and the Son. And so that this, this morning, I'm excited to dive into this text because underneath all that Peter is going to be calling us to do as exiles, we're going to find the power and the grace and the work of the Spirit in our lives. In the same way that Jesus made much of his father during his earthly ministry, if you would read the Gospels, you'll see often that Jesus is saying, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only do what would please the Father. I aim to give glory to my Father in heaven. In the same way that Jesus makes much of his father in his earthly ministry, so too does the Spirit make much of Jesus. In the life of the church, in the life of believers, the role of the Spirit regularly is to empower believers to give honor and glory to Christ, which is why the Spirit comes to sinners in the first place, to give them life, to gift them, to empower them, and to sustain them for a lifetime of glorifying God and growing in Christ-likeness. So let's read our passage and dive into what the Word has for us. Chapter 4, 1 Peter, starting in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. And Lord, we do confess that to you alone belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. You are worthy of our worship. You're worthy of all the glory of creation and infinitely more because you are an infinitely holy, infinitely good God. And we thank you that you have given us 
your word, by your spirit, as we learn about your spirit today, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would open up our eyes and our ears to hear and to see all that you have for us in your holy word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to talk to you from this text about some of the things the Holy Spirit does for you and for me. If you are in Christ, you are indwelled by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. So let's think together about these things. If you're taking notes, the first point is this. Number one, the Holy Spirit makes us spiritually alive. The Holy Spirit makes us spiritually alive. Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, died on the cross. That's what Peter says in verse 1. He suffered in the flesh for sin. And as we learned last week, he took our place, right? He was our substitute, dying our death, paying our debt, suffering the wrath that was reserved for us. And because of his atoning sacrifice, because Jesus died for you and for me, we can now have life in him. So, Peter says, in light of all of that good news, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Well, what kind of thinking is he talking about? The same way of thinking about what? Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same kind of thinking. Well, what kind of thinking is he talking about? I think he's talking about thinking about who we once were and who we now are in Christ. So, before you came to be a Christian... Before you made a profession of faith, before you surrendered your life to Jesus, before you repented of your sin, you were a sinner destined for hell and judgment, but Jesus paid for your sins. And now, instead of being spiritually dead, running headlong into destruction, you're spiritually alive, and you're in Christ, and you're now adopted into the family of God. So Peter is telling all of the exiles, you and me included, arm yourself with this thought. I am no longer identified as someone who is condemned in my sin. I am no longer identified as an enemy of God. Now, my identity is in Jesus. My identity is in Christ and in Christ alone. And this thinking, this transforming of the mind, Paul says in Romans. This gift of faith, Paul says in Ephesians 2. For us to believe in Jesus comes from the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the one who brings us to life. Whoever suffered in the flesh, Peter says, has ceased from sin. Now, that's kind of a hard passage to, to think about because, um, I mean, I've sinned today. I don't know about you. Um, I mean, maybe you're just super, like, on a, you're on a really good track right now. Uh, and, and your streak is hot. And so today you're doing a good, but like, let's add yesterday. And you fell short of the glory of God, right? You, you, you fell short in word or thought in, or in deed. You, you fell short in what you ought to do but didn't do or what you shouldn't have done but you ended up doing. So how is it that Peter can say that whoever has suffered in the flesh, because think about Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. If, if that's me, if that's you, have we really ceased from sin? What does that mean? Here's what I think it means. It means that in this life, if you're a Christian, your time in the flesh, as Peter says, your time in this world, 
is no longer wrapped up and controlled by sinful pursuits and depraved human passions, but it's wrapped up in the will of God. Not only does the Spirit make you alive, He gives you purpose. We not only have life in Christ by the Spirit, but now by the Spirit we have something to live for. You have a purpose to your life. It's to make much of God and to make disciples and to prepare for an eternity of joy. You've ceased from sin. That's not your life anymore. Will you fall short? Yes. And think in the immediate context. We learned a couple weeks ago, the emperor at this time was Nero. The emperor who was on a rampage to kill Christians. So what does it mean to cease from sin? If I've been crucified with Christ, I will go to my death. I will suffer in the flesh and not sin. I won't won't renounce the name of Jesus. I won't won't give up my identity in him because I have something to live for. I have a new life. I have a new identity. By the power of the Spirit, I've been made alive, and, and physical death is no threat to me because my soul has been kept secure, and I will rise again. Now, what does this shift look like? For some of us, when we went from death to life, That shift was huge, like externally really obvious, really clear. I mean, look at verse 3. He says, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, some of you came from this kind of lifestyle, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Not a good list. Like not a good list. And some of you came from that kind of life, maybe in microcosm, Like maybe when you were a child, you weren't doing the full extent of what these things mean, but you were on that way. Or maybe for some of you who came to faith when you were a little bit older, maybe that is some of you. Maybe you think about your own life and your own past and you say, I have those things. I have those sins that that I've been forgiven for, but they're real. Jesus says, or Peter says rather, all of this debauchery and sin is over. The time that's passed is enough. It suffices. It's done. The old life is gone. Maybe before coming to Christ, you had a pattern of sin that gripped you. And you read, ran headlong into it. And maybe it was something external. And you craved the promises of the world and your flesh. And you ran after those promises and they never satisfied you. The good news is that by the Spirit's work of opening your eyes, you can now see those promises for what they are. They're false. They're not real. They're not true. It's a path that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. But for others of you, your patterns of sin were not external. They were internal. Your patterns of sin weren't something blatant that the world could judge you for, but they were something in some ways just as, if not more sinister. Perhaps perfectionism or legalism or a craving for approval and status of being morally upright led you to strive for morality instead of immorality, but all that so you could be your own idol. Not so that you could make much of the Lord, so that people could make much of you. And maybe that's still you today. You take an honest look at your own life and you say, I'm actually led by my sinful desires, if I'm honest. I'm led by my own desires and not the will of God. I I want what I want more than I want to obey God. 
And if that's you, if you're honest with yourself, let this good news of the gospel ring clear in your ears and in your heart once again. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Just like you. That's actually the only prerequisite to come to Christ in faith to be saved is to be a sinner. That's all you need. And we've all got it. So all of us are welcome to come to the feet of Jesus and receive life instead of death, to receive a, a light yoke instead of a heavy burden. And you can receive that life. You can receive that rest today by the power of the Holy Spirit. He can make you alive. But anyone who is in Christ, who is righteous before God, who is spiritually alive, is so by the work of the Spirit. Christ calls all to come to receive Rest for their weary souls. The Spirit is the one who draws them. You see that all throughout the Scriptures and all throughout Christian history and all throughout theology and all throughout your life, there is this inseparable link between the Word and the Spirit. The Word and the Spirit. We proclaim the Word as pastors and preachers. The Spirit does the work. Jesus, the Word, calls all who are weary, come to me and I'll give you rest, and the Spirit draws them to come. The Word and the Spirit are inseparable. And once you have that Spirit, if you have faith in the Word, you have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, He is with you for life. Second point, the Holy Spirit preserves us forever. The Holy Spirit preserves us forever. Just because we have life in Christ by the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that all our surroundings will immediately become bright and awesome. Right? When you came to faith, when you became a believer, it's not like your whole world was now just good and great. It may seem that way because your joy is so full and your eyes are so clear and you see God's goodness in all the things around you, but the circumstances aren't what changed. You changed. The Spirit made you alive and now you can see rightly. But when you come to faith, you're not transported to another physical location. You're still where you are. In a broken world, surrounded by sinners. If we start living a life that honors God, those sinners are going to notice. The ones that you used to sin with are going to notice when you stop. That's what Peter's getting at in verse 4. It says, in respect, with respect to this, they, that is the ones who continue sinning, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They're like, what's into this guy? What's into this girl? Why is she not talking to us about that girl anymore? Why is she not hanging out with us anymore? Why is she not going to those parties that we're going to anymore? Why is he not having those conversations with us that he was anymore? Why is he not talking to us like he used to? They're going to notice. And they're going to be surprised because, well, I don't have any reason to stop doing what I'm doing. Why do they have a reason to stop doing what they're doing? They're going to be shocked. Now, all of us will be in situations where faithfulness to Christ will probably lead to being maligned. That's what Peter says. Not only will they be surprised, they're going to malign you. They're going to dishonor you. They're going to disrespect you. That sin that they so much love to do will turn on you. And it may come with accusations of being self-righteous or holier than thou or hateful or bigoted or closed-minded or naive or some other kind of insult, whether that's at your school or in your team or in your house. It's coming. Faithfulness to Jesus will bring about repute. It will bring about derision. It will bring about being maligned. It will bring about being disrespected because the world thinks that the truth leads to death. They hate the truth. That's what 
Paul says in Romans 1, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and they love the darkness rather than the light. They hate the truth. So for you to live your life out in the truth will seem like hate to them because they hate the truth. Could be in a group text or in that conversation on social media or in those comment threads on Instagram or with a boyfriend or a girlfriend when you're by yourself or at a party or any number of places. Because Scripture is clear about those who continue to walk in sin apart from Christ. Scripture is clear. What is their end? Their end is destruction. Their end is judgment. Their end is hell. They will give an account to God, Peter says, the one who will judge the living and the dead. And, And the point of him saying that is this. No one who has ever lived on the earth will escape the judgment of God. There are many people who say something like this, well, you just follow your religion and I'll follow my religion and everything will just kind of turn out in the end. And, and their, their thought process is, I'm going to adhere to this kind of standard of living and I'm going to be judged accordingly. You can be set to that standard of living and be judged accordingly, but that's not true. The truth is all of us will be standing one day to give an account of our lives before God. He judges the living and the dead. Either we will stand before him washed in the blood of Jesus, or we will stand before him with shame and despair. And so we thank the Lord that he has given us his Holy Spirit to seal us and preserve us for that day. God the Holy Spirit will see fit to perfectly apply all that Jesus has accomplished to you. Like, think about the weight that's being lifted off of your shoulders if you think about that. It is not your job to maintain Christ's righteousness. It's not your job. Christ's righteousness is perfect. Christ's righteousness is applied not by you, but by the Spirit. It's not, that's not your job. You don't have to wonder after you have a terrible day, when you look back and think of all the ways that you fell short and all of the things that make you hate yourself because of all the ways that you didn't do what you were supposed to do or did what you weren't supposed to do or you got caught up in that sin again and you fall to your bed and your head hits the pillow and you wonder, does God even know me? Does God even love me? Am I even one of his children? And the answer is resoundingly yes, because that's not your job. Your job isn't to maintain something that you could lose. And John MacArthur says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. You would. Because none of us have the capacity to keep this thing up. But the Spirit does. And the Spirit preserves us for that day. So if you are in Christ, you never have to wonder where you stand with God. You're made alive by the Spirit and sealed by the Spirit. And that's been true of everyone who has placed their faith in the Lord. That's what Peter means in verse 6, right? So Peter says in verse 6, that's why the gospel was preached to those who are dead. And a lot of people get that and go, wait, so like when you die, is there like an angel who's like, hey, sorry, man, like you just lucked out to live on that island and you never heard about Jesus. So um, there's this guy who died on the cross for your sins And you can either go down that road to eternal destruction, or yeah, you can follow me. I'm an angel. Unbelievably glorious and awesome and super terrifying. And I've never lied because I'm sinless. And so you should trust Jesus and follow me to heaven and put your faith in him and he saves you from your sins. Do you want to do that? 
Like, could you imagine like the guy kind of soulishly floating and going, man, I really just think eternal destruction is my, my kind of deal. Like, no, that's not what happens. There's not like a second chance when you die of like, man, I know I, I, you went to 47 VBSs because you went to your churches and then the church down the road and then their church and then your cousin's church. And you heard the gospel like a bajillion times and you never responded. So I guess I'll give you one more opportunity now that you're dead. That's not what he's getting at. He's saying that everyone who has placed their faith in the Lord, living or dead, can trust that forever the Spirit of God will preserve them. Their souls will never die. So not only does the Holy Spirit preserve us in this life, it's the Spirit that we will, by the Spirit, that we will gloriously be alive with Christ forever. Our life in the new creation, when Jesus comes back to make all things right, heaven descends to earth, and there's a new heaven and new earth, our lives will be a Spirit-filled life. We'll walk in the Spirit. We'll live in the Spirit. We'll be empowered by the Spirit. But until that wonderful day comes, when Jesus comes to make us like Him in fullness, when we see Him as He really is, and He restores all things to Himself, until that day comes, we have to live in this world. Like, that's, that's coming. It's promised. It's for sure, but it's not here yet. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, we're, we're living in this world. We're living as exiles in a place that's not our home. So if we're going to stand firm as exiles, if we're going to live in this place in a way that honors the Lord Jesus, what does it look like day to day? Well, Peter puts a bow on it right here. We've been thinking about it for the last two chapters in 1 Peter, but he sums it all up in the next couple of verses. So number three, taking notes, third point. The Holy Spirit empowers our life. The Holy Spirit empowers our life. Look at verse 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. <laughs> Peter's writing to the exiles among the dispersion and saying, we're in the last days. Like the end times, the things that we think about and people have a bunch of debates about and try to get whose chart is the biggest and most complex. Peter says, that's right now. We're in the last days. We're, we're the end of things. The, the last the end of all things is at hand. The Lord is coming again soon. But His impending return should not paralyze us from going out into the world and living. I mean, if you read First and Second Thessalonians, this is one of the reasons why Paul is having to write those letters. is because the Thessalonian church was like, well, if Jesus is coming back, then I'm just not going to do anything. I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to go to work. I'm not going to like rear my children. I'm just going to sit here because he's coming soon. He's like, that's not what I mean. Don't do that. Right? His impending return shouldn't paralyze us. So Peter, therefore, calls us all to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. A similar warning to the ones that the husbands heard last week, our young men. If we're not to honor our wives well, that our prayers will be hindered. So we live with self-control, meaning we don't fall into acting out our sinful desires and tendencies. That's what self-control means. Self-control does not mean you don't have sinful desires and tendencies. Brothers and sisters, like you're going to have those until Jesus comes back or until your soul is with him in heaven. But it's why Peter, or it's why Paul rather says things like you should take every thought captive, or why he says in Galatians that one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control that you're able to take those sinful desires and put them to death. 
and not act out on those tendencies and desires. And all of us learn this in some ways, right? Like, like I have a, a almost nine-month-old now. He has no self-control, right? Zero self-control. Like, Abe, don't put the flip-flop in your mouth. He's like, what? Like, none. He's like, I see that thing. I want that thing. I'm going to get that thing. And if I don't get that thing, I'm going to freak out. Like, the, the most that my little body can do, I'm just going to tell you I'm upset about it, Right? No self-control. But over time, he starts to learn like, oh, I can't just like mug that guy and steal his shoes. It's literally what he does to me, right? He like tries to hit me in the leg and like take a shoe, right? But you can't do that when you're 20, right? Because then you go to prison. But you can do that when you're nine months old because you're a baby. All of us grow in self-control in, in some ways. What Peter is saying is to grow in self-control in the way that matters most. In the desires of your heart that lead you away from God. We will not be perfect, but you can grow in victory over your sin. If you have the Spirit, you can grow in victory over your sin. Don't be so disappointed and despairing of yourself when you fall short that nothing will ever change. That's a lie. That's a lie from the enemy that wants you to just continue into sin. And we live with sober minds, Peter says. We aim to think clearly about the world around us and about ourselves. So we don't easily become led away by false teaching or sensational ideas or that influencer on social media or fake news or whatever. We have sober minds. We see the world as, by God's grace, the world is. And not as how somebody else wants us to see it. But above all, verse 8, we're to keep on loving one another earnestly. Keep on loving one another earnestly. That's what he says. Keep loving one another. So when do you stop keep loving? You don't. It's a continuous action. It's not something that you turn on when you want to and you turn off when you're tired. It's not something that you do uh, towards people that it's easy to do and you turn off towards people that it's hard to do. You keep on loving one another earnestly. It's, it's a continuous action in the life of a Christian that you would be marked by being a person full of love for others. That should make you a little uncomfortable. You think about your own life and you think about how many people in your life would be confident if you asked them, do you love me? Do I love you? Keep on delighting in those around you, Peter says, because love covers a multitude of sins, right? If your friendships never have friction, you probably don't know each other that well, right? Like if your friendships never collide into disagreement, never collide into holding someone accountable for something, then you probably really don't know each other that well. Because you're not that person. That person isn't you. You're different. But if you love one another, those disagreements and those collisions will be smoothed out by the power of love that God has given you for that person and the love that they have for you. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's why in the life of the church, it's really easy for us. In the life of the youth group, in the life of as a teenager, it's really easy to get bent out of shape over something that's just not a big deal. It's just not a big deal. 
And it's good that we want to cultivate in our hearts and our minds a sense of justice and a sense of righteousness so that when we see somebody else being taken advantage of, we're quick to come to their aid. That is a sign of love. But if you get offended over every little thing, the problem ultimately is not with the other people. The problem is with you and a lack of love. So without grumbling, he says, we're to show hospitality. Because it's hard to be grumpy and angry all the time with someone that I've committed to love. Does it mean that I will never be grumpy and upset? No. But love will cover a multitude of sins. So when my friend or my wife or my brother or my sister falls short, when I fall short, our love for one another will act as a bandage that quickly covers and heals the wounds that are caused. We don't just look at each other and go, look at that wound. You did that. Look at it. And they're like, I, I, I see the wound. I'm sorry. Like, I want to ask your forgiveness. Well, no. I mean, look at the wound. It hurts. It's getting infected. I mean, I know I'm trying to give you, I'm, I'm trying to make things right. I'm trying to apologize. I'm trying to seek your forgiveness. No, I'm upset about it. I'm offended. That's not the way we ought to live. We show hospitality. We keep on loving one another. So when you go to school and you have tons of opportunities to put this into practice, you're going to go home tired. Not just because you are learning things you've never learned before, but because you're having to deal with people that, frankly, are hard to deal with. You have an opportunity right here in this room, in your own home. But I'm telling you, the problem is that in our own strength, we're only going to make it so far. In our own strength, we're only going to keep on loving for so long. We need the Spirit of God to empower us and remind us over and over and over of the blessing that comes from being a blessing. This is what we learned last week. You want to receive God's blessing? Bless others. You want to be blessed by the Lord? Be a blessing. We need him all day. We need him every day. And my hope is that you and I would both really believe that. Part of the problem of why it's so hard for us to keep on loving one another is because we kind of forget that we have the Spirit. It's like God has given us all of these tools and we're like, yeah, but I think I'm just going to build that boat with my bare hands. Try to rip this tree down and, and get, the, get the wood just right and, and bend it around and try to fasten it together. I'm just going to do it with my bare hands. And the Spirit of God's like, man, I got drills and hammers and all this stuff that you need. And you're like, nah, I just think my hands are good. And man, your hands are bleeding and tired and broken. And you're like, ah, but I'm good. I got it. A Christian, you have the Spirit of God and therefore you have the power of God who is ready and willing to enable you to be faithful to what He's called you to do. I cannot please God you cannot please God apart from faithfulness. And faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. So you and I are constantly dependent on the Spirit. And praise the Lord, not only does He empower us for daily faithfulness, number four, last thing, He goes above and beyond with spiritual gifts. So number four, the Holy Spirit gives us gifts. Verses 10 and 11, Peter wraps up this section by focusing in on the fact of spiritual gifts the direction of spiritual gifts, 
and the purpose of spiritual gifts. So the fact, the direction, and the purpose. He tells us in verse 10 that each of us has received at least one gift. Right? Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So we've all received at least a gift. And if you want more information about the gifts of the Spirit, you can go to Romans chapter 12 or 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians chapter 4. I don't think any of those lists are exhaustive lists, but they're a good place to start. What are some of the ways that God has gifted you? Are you just naturally generous? Are you a natural encourager? Or do you naturally just have the gift of faith? Do you just believe God's promises at face value and you have no wavering or doubting and you're able to encourage one another by your faithfulness? That's a gift. Are you really keen and, and, and skilled in administration and logic and putting things together well? That's a gift. Are you able to speak in a way that persuades others and helps them understand what it is that you're trying to say? That's a gift. God has given each of us at least one gift. So don't think for a moment that you don't have a gift if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you have a gift. The problem is not whether or not you have a gift. The problem is, do you know what that gift is? It'd be nice if when you place your faith in Jesus, you got like a note in the mail that was like, prayer. Preaching, right? Like, exhortation. You're like, great, got it. I can just put it on my window, put it on my bathroom mirror. Just see, like, that's the gift I got. Great. You don't get that. So how do you know what your gift is? There's a great way to find out. Serve the church. Serve the church. You want to find out something less clear about your life as a Christian? Be obedient to the things that are clear. If you're a member of the body of Christ, you're called to serve the body. And as you serve the body, you practice out the things that God has given you to do. That's the direction of your gift, right? You serve others. The, the direction of your gift is not for you. Your gifts don't terminate on themselves. So if somebody has the gift of teaching and uses it to make a huge platform and build a huge ministry empire, make tons of money and have tons of influence, they're not using their gift the way God intended. So their gift isn't for them. The gift is for others. So if you have a speaking gift like preaching or teaching, use it in the life of the church. If you have a serving gift, like encouragement or hospitality or generosity, then use it in the life of the church. And as you serve in the life of the church, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be people around you who, if they have eyes to see, will look at you and say, you are so, so good at being merciful when people don't deserve it. Like I've seen you interact with preschool kids and they're just really hard to deal with. And you're just so gracious and so kind all the time. I don't know how you do it. And you go, yeah, I guess I am pretty good at that. And you think, is that me? Do I have the capacity in myself as a broken, sinful person to be naturally merciful to six-year-olds? Probably not. Perhaps it's the gift of the Spirit that God has given you for the sake of the church. So affirmation and experience are the best ways to understand how God the Holy Spirit has gifted you as a member of the body. So you have the fact of spiritual gifts. You have one. You may have more than one, but you definitely have one. And the direction of your gifts should be towards one another. You use your gifts for the sake of your brothers and sisters. And finally, Peter gives us the ultimate purpose of the gifts. The glory of God through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So notice the formula. You see this over and over again in the Scriptures 
And I think you see it over and over again if you think about theology. We glorify God the Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. We, we glorify God the Father. We give honor and praise. We worship God the Father through the work of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we pray, often the formula is we pray, God, our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ. But the only way we know how to pray, Romans chapter 8, is the Spirit speaks. When we don't know what to pray for, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. So by using our spiritual gifts in the body of Christ, we're glorifying God, which is the very thing you were made to do. God is intimately active in making us alive and gifting us and empowering us for his glory. And Peter sees all this. He explains all this to the exiles. And how does he end? He ends with worship. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And that should be the response of our hearts as well. We see how wonderful the triune God is. We think about all that he has done for our good at great cost to himself to bring us from death to life, to dwell within us, to give us gifts, to give us power, to sustain us, to give us victory over our sin. On and on we can go. And we confess he's worthy. He's worthy of our worship. Who am I that you would be mindful of me? Our God who sits enthroned on the heavens, who the earth is his footstool, is intimately in infinite detail concerned about your life, about my life. And he's orchestrating all things in creation to bring about something in you. Like I'm doing something, God says, with stars in galaxies that you will never see in some way orchestrating my providence to bring about your holiness and your good. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, we do come to you in the name of Jesus, confessing that you are worthy of worship, that we love you, that we praise you, that you are full of glory, that you're full of majesty, that you're infinitely wise, infinitely good, infinitely beautiful. And we thank you, we praise you for sending your son to live out a life we could never have lived, to, to be the promised Messiah, to be the son of David, to be the seed of Abraham, to be the greater prophet, the greater priest, the greater king, to be the man of sorrows, to be stricken and afflicted, to bear the chastisement that brought us peace, to bear our wounds in his body, to die and to rise in victory, to ascend to the right hand, to send the Holy Spirit to indwell us as the people of God, to make us living stones that build up a spiritual house that we might stand firm in the kingdom of darkness and shine as a city on a hill. We praise you that you would allow us, that you would call us, that you would delight in us being a part of your story in the world. So Lord, help us. Help us to once again be clearly aware of our dependence. God, we need you. 
We need your spirit to sustain us. We need your Holy Spirit to empower us, to motivate us, to lead us, to fill us, to guide us, to use us as your hands and feet for the sake of your glory. Help us in the next few moments to do that with our groups this morning. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.